which can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 6 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, as we come to God's word, let's just pray for his guidance and help. Father, we thank you for the gift that your scriptures are to us. Your Holy Spirit was necessary in writing them and your Holy Spirit is necessary in understanding them. And we pray that just as your spirit was with Paul when he wrote this letter, that that same spirit of yours will be here with us, guiding us teaching us, and helping us to understand your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, a woman appeared on breakfast television show in the UK after claiming that her dog, Storm, was in fact a vegetarian. Now, this woman was adamant that her dog's diet was not something that she had forced onto the pet, but was instead entirely the choice of the canine. Now, for some reason, it would appear that this woman didn't have the foresight to predict that the show's hosts would probably want to put the claim to the test. And what better way of testing the claim than by offering Storm two bowls of food to choose from, live on air, one bowl of meat and the other bowl of vegetables. A crew member darted onto the stage and placed the two bowls side by side in front of the dog before the host asked her to let go of the leash. 
as you can probably guess, the dog walked straight to the bowl of meat and devoured it. And as you can probably imagine, the humiliation that the woman felt being proved wrong on national television before millions and millions of viewers. It was cringe-worthy viewing. Maybe you've been in a similar situation yourself. You've talked something up only to have it fail to meet expectations. Those expectations don't have to be unrealistic either, like a vegetarian dog. My daughter, for example, can recite most of the books of the Bible, provided she's at home and not asked to do it on cue. Ask her to do it for her grandparents, however, and suddenly she's forgotten them all or she's too shy and embarrassed to get past the first few. Nobody likes to appear wrong when they're not, and few want to be proved wrong when they are. It's uncomfortable when it happens to us, and it can be just as uncomfortable watching it happen to other people. Or just like us, Paul didn't want to find himself in that awkward situation either. Here he worried that he might. For months, the apostle had been boasting to the Macedonian Christians about the Corinthian church and their willingness to help others that are struggling. In fact, they were so eager to help that they'd promised to give Paul a substantial gift that he could then hand on to the Christians who were in need, particularly those who were struggling in Jerusalem. The zeal of the Corinthian church was a great encouragement to Paul. It was so encouraging that he couldn't help but boasting of their readiness and their willingness to care for others. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 2, Paul says, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Archaea has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now the problem is, Paul was on his way from Macedonia to Corinth, and there was a good chance there that some of the Macedonians were going to make that trip with him. So the question is, when Paul arrives, will he find a church with the same level of commitment that they once had? A church with the same level of zeal that he boasted of? Or will he find an apathetic church? A church that is now reluctant to fulfill their word? In the latter case, not only would that humiliate Paul for being so confident about the church. It would humiliate the Corinthians and it would be a great discouragement to the Macedonians. So in order to avoid this, Paul sent a few Christian brothers ahead to prepare the church for his visit. In verse 3 he says, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you were not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance the gift that you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an extraction. 
In other words, Paul wants the Corinthians to prepare their gift beforehand as a blessing so that there's no sense of compulsion when he arrives. He doesn't want the gift to be given begrudgingly. You see, for Paul, it's not only important that we care for people in need. What's also important is how we care for people in need. This isn't about fulfilling some religious obligation or tithe. It's not enough to simply hand over the money. Charity to Paul is much more than that. Not only is it about those who receive the gift and benefit from the generosity, it's also about the giver of the gift. We must never forget that God does not need our help. We don't give to God because he needs our money. We don't give to God because his will cannot be accomplished without our assistance. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, Paul says in Acts 17. And the reason for this is since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not the one in need. We are. Whether you give the gift or receive the gift, both are given everything, including the gift, by God, who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every cent we give to God was given to us by God. And there is not one thing that we have that we have not been given. Paul says that in his first letter to the Corinthians. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if, as if you haven't received it? Everything that we have is his. And he needs nothing. But if he needs nothing, then the question is, why does he ask for anything? Why does Paul care whether the Corinthians fulfill their word or not? Why does he care about their donation? Jesus tells us that God provides for the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Matthew six twenty six. How does God feed the birds of the air? Does he ask the sparrows to set aside a gift each week for the hungry crows? No. So why then does he ask us to do that? If God's capable of feeding every bird, and not only every bird, but every beast and every animal in need, why does he ask us to help him? Because giving not only positively impacts those in need, it ought to positively impact the giver too. In verse 6, Paul tells us to view charity not so much as a sacrifice or a loss, but rather as a farmer who is sowing seeds in a field. Now, a farmer doesn't scatter seed to no end. He sows the seed for a purpose, knowing full well that what he reaps will be greater than what he has sown. 
Just think of what one seed alone can produce. The more seed, the more trees, the more trees, the more fruit, the more fruit, the more seeds. And so Paul appeals to this analogy and tells the Corinthians, when they set aside their gift, they ought to remember that like a farmer in the field, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The difficulty that we have today with this text in particular is that now it is often used and abused by phony evangelists and false preachers to rake in millions upon millions of dollars from vulnerable and ignorant listeners. If you're unfortunate enough to have seen any of them on early morning television, you'd have heard their offer of life, prosperity, health and ease. All in exchange for a financial contribution to their ministry. And of course, those who don't see immediate results are told they're merely reaping according to what they have sown. If their results are sparing, then surely God wants them to sow more seed. And so we have people who give and give and give in a desperate effort to finally hit jackpot. Not only have their initial issues resolved, but also get them out of the debt that they're now drowning in. In effect, these false prophets are in the business of selling fake miracles. But the incorrect assumption here is that this verse, when it talks about reaping bountifully, or rather a blessed harvest, means whatever we personally want it to mean. Whether it's financial prosperity, or physical healing, or a promotion at work, Yes, it's true, those who sow bountifully will reap a blessed harvest. But it's not up to us to decide what that harvest looks like or where and how we reap from it. No, Paul's concern here is with what kind of giver these Corinthians are to be. Do we sow blessing? Or do we sow with reluctancy? Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Obedience to God is important. We must obey his commands. But what's paramount to obedience is the motivation. Because as terror... Because the terrifying fact is that it's possible to give in such a way that you benefit nothing and you gain nothing. It's possible to sow a seed and to reap nothing in return. It doesn't matter how much seed you sow or how great your contribution is. As Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all I have, If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have no love, I gain nothing. You could give everything you have to the poor. But if your heart is not right, you lose everything 
and you gain nothing. As John Piper rightly said, the Christian ethic is never just do it. God is concerned with the reason, the motivation behind what we do. What's in our hearts? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, Paul said. Not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful, a joyful giver. You see, if giving to those in need had nothing to do with the giver, God could do that without us. He doesn't need us. He's the ultimate giver. But by inviting us to cheerfully give to those in need, he's providing us with an opportunity to grow in our likeness of him and to reflect him who gives life and breath and everything to all people. And to do that joyfully. That is what God loves, Paul says. God loves a cheerful giver. But why is that? If other people are having their needs met, why does the state of my heart matter? Because a cheerful giver reflects Christ in at least three ways. One... By giving joy, we show that we love God more than our stuff. We love the giver more than the gifts that he has blessed us with. Two, we show that we love people more than the stuff God has given us. And three, we show that our trust is in God to provide We show that we are not dependent upon the stuff that he's given us as much as we are dependent on him who promises to provide for us. If we love our stuff more than we love God, we'll view charity as compulsion. If we love our stuff more than we love God's people, we will hesitate to give our stuff to them. And if we trust our stuff and our security is in our stuff, then naturally will be reluctant to part with them. But Paul here is not asking the church to impoverish themselves for the sake of making another church rich either. This is not an unreasonable request from Paul. As we heard last week, Paul said, I do not mean that others should be eased and that you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at present should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your needs, that there may be fairness. In other words, the abundance that God has given this church was given to them in order that they might benefit those in need. God provided them, not only with everything they need, but also with an opportunity to do good for others. Look at verse 8, where Paul goes on to assure his readers that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's to say, God gives us everything we need for every good work that he expects us to accomplish. And he does expect us to do good works. 
Ephesians 2, result of work, grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He goes on to say, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. We're saved for good works. Indeed, Paul further stresses that point in 2 Corinthians 9 by saying that we ought to abound, go over and above in every good work. As it is written, he says, quoting Psalm 112, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor his righteousness and doers forever. It's God that's giving to us in order that we might do good in giving to others. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God promises that he will use his people as the resource and the resources that he's given them as an instrument of his grace towards those who are in need. And as we are faithful to that end, God promises to provide for our needs that we might continue to generously meet the needs of others. John Calvin once said, There cannot be a surer rule nor a stronger exhortation to the observance of it than that when we are taught that all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbours. And this generosity has another effect, which is the most important of all. By providing for Christians in need, you're actually prompting them to give glory and thanks to God. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, for Paul, charity is not just about meeting the needs of people. It's not just about giving from a joyful heart. It's also about those gifts producing hearts of thankfulness towards God. Ministers might stand behind a pulpit and preach for hours about the importance of thankfulness towards God. But a small gift to a Christian in need may produce a heart of thankfulness towards God that 10,000 words couldn't provoke. We glorify God when our prayers are answered, when our needs are met. But we also glorify God when we hear of him meeting the needs of others. And he's invited his church to participate with him in that for their own joy, for their own edification, for the needs 
of the saints and ultimately for his own glory. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In other words, what we are seeing here is the effect of the gospel in their lives. Joyful giving prompts thanksgiving to God. But joyful, and we joyfully give out of thankfulness to God. Out of thankfulness to God for what Paul calls God's inexpressible or indescribable gift to us. Our gift is but a reflex of God's giving, as one preacher put it. What is this inexpressible gift that God has given us that then prompts us to give to others? We all know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave what Paul said was an inexpressible gift. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. We were in need of a saviour. Some of us still may be in need of a saviour. But the good news is that God has seen that need. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he has given an inexpressible gift to the world. And he has said, receive that gift. Receive Christ. Because without him, we all have less than the poorest Christian to have ever lived. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift that you have given us in your son. We thank you that you gave so much. We ask that we would grow in our understanding of what that means, that we would grow in our knowledge of the sacrifice, the atonement that was made, and the triumph over death and sin. We pray, Lord God, that our knowledge of your Son and the gift that he has given to the world would be motivation for us to see those in need and joyfully give, joyfully help. Help us to love you more than the things we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we'll now be